Throughout the history of our nation, we have been faced with a number of unique challenges as a people. And in these times of trial and crisis, God has raised up great leaders for our nation who have inspired our people uh, to confidently uh, face the challenges that we were being confronted with. I want to share some excerpts from some of the great speeches throughout the history of our nation. See if you uh, recognize any of these. Uh, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth." Anyone recognize that great speech? That was Lincoln's Gettysburg Address during the Civil War. How about this one? The path we have chosen for the present is full of hazards, as all paths are. But it is the one most consistent with our character and courage as a nation and our commitments around the world. The cost of freedom is always high, but Americans have always paid it. And one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. Not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom here in this hemisphere, and we hope around the world. God willing, that goal will be achieved. Who is this one? President John F. Kennedy has addressed to the nation during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then lastly, we have President George W. Bush addressing the nation on the night of 9-11. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shattered steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. And no one will keep that light from shining. Today our nation saw evil the very worst of human nature. And we responded with the best of America, with the daring of our rescue workers, with the caring for strangers and neighbors who came to give blood and help in any way they could. America has stood down enemies before, and we will do so this time. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. Some powerful words from some great leaders. May God raise up leaders like this again for our nation. But it's very interesting. We read these speeches from these great leaders in times of crisis facing our country. And if you pay attention to those words, you'll note that there were three commonalities in each of these speeches. And I could have drawn from numerous others. But the three things we see in common in each of these speeches, number one, a reminder of who we are and the blessings that are ours. Number two, an identification of the threat that's confronting us. And then number three, declaring a call to action. 
how will we respond? See, friends, all great leaders know and understand that a people need to be properly motivated when compelled into the fray, the fray of battle, the fray of crisis. And these aren't just principles that great leaders here in our nation recognize, but these are principles that even the great leaders of the church have recognized throughout history. The need to motivate God's people when facing hardships and trials and threats to the faith. These commonalities, these motivations that we see in these speeches this morning, they're principles that leaders in the early church understood, leaders like the Apostle Paul, leaders like the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, like the author of the book that we're going to be studying this morning, a man named Jude. Jude is a fascinating book. It's one of the shortest books in the New Testament. It's only 25 verses. Jude was written by a man who was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And by half-brother, I mean he had the same earthly mother, Mary, but Jude had an earthly father while Jesus had no earthly father. Jesus was conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit of God. And so Jude was one of the half-brothers of Jesus Christ. Friends, are you aware that Jesus had numerous brothers and sisters? In fact, when we read the Gospels, Gospels like Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Mark 6, 3 tells us that Jesus had a number of brothers and sisters. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Judas there is Jude, who we're going to be reading this morning. And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. It's interesting, the Gospels here in Mark, the Gospel of Matthew as well, tell us that Jesus had a number of brothers and sisters. Some of you may have come out of a Catholic background. You were taught the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Friends, that's not biblical. Mary wasn't perpetually a virgin. In fact, after giving birth to Jesus Christ, she would naturally conceive and give birth to numerous other children. We read, interestingly, in the Gospels that while Jesus had a number of brothers, these brothers did not believe who he was originally. When he started his ministry teaching and proclaiming that he was the Messiah, the Gospels tell us that, that they disbelieved Jesus. In fact, we read in John chapter 7, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. And so this is fascinating background for us to understand because Judas, or Jude, who writes one of the most important letters in the New Testament, which we're going to be studying over the next six weeks, was originally amongst the brothers of Jesus who didn't believe that he truly was the Messiah, the Savior, Lord of all. And yet later, Jude would come to believe that and affirm that and call the church to contend for those very truths. What changed in Jude's understanding of Jesus? Friends, I believe it was Jude's witnessing of the resurrection of his brother Jesus that convinced Jude that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. Not only did he teach these incredible things, not only did he perform miracles, but he prophesied his death and resurrection, and he fulfilled that claim. And it was so powerful that it convinced Jude that Jesus truly was the Messiah, the Son of God, the eternal creator of all. Well, Jude wrote this letter around 65 AD. This is roughly 30 years after the time of Jesus' life and ministry. 
So 30 years have gone by. This is during the period of the early church, the period of the book of Acts. And Jude wrote this letter that we're going to be studying as a call to arms, as a battle cry, as a charge for Christians to contend for the integrity of the faith. Why do Christians need to contend for the integrity of the faith? Well, friends, remember, going all the way back to the very beginning to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Jesus had warned his disciples that false Christs and false prophets were coming. In fact, in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus told his disciples, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Jesus then said in Matthew 7, Verses 15 through 16, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Now, we're going to talk throughout this series a lot about this idea of false Christs and false prophets and false teachings that have crept into the church. But understand, friends, this was a reality for God's people from the very beginning. These dangers to the truth of the biblical faith that we profess as followers of Jesus Christ. And so Jude is calling the church to contend for the faith. Jude is a response to apostates who had infiltrated the church at the end of the first century. And friends, apostates are still with us today doing damage to the integrity of the faith. What is an apostate? An apostate is simply someone who has fallen away from the faith, someone who has embraced false teaching, someone who actively seeks to further compromise the truth of the gospel and the integrity of the church. And there are numerous examples of apostasy throughout history and apostasy in the church today. Things like the LGBT agenda, and prosperity theology, and the new apostolic reformation, those who would deny the inerrancy and inspiration of scripture, Marxism dressed up as social justice, racism, political idolatry, occult practices repackaged as tools for discipleship. There is a whole host of false teachings still infiltrating the church today. And there are apostates promoting these falsehoods. And so Jude is a call for contenders. Jude is a call for God's people to stand up and defend the truth of the Christian faith. In fact, let me read for you the first four verses of the book of Jude. Jeff, we don't need to go to that next slide quite yet. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now listen to this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common faith, our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is what the book of Jude is all about, friends. Jude starts out writing this letter to the church. Look, I wanted to write and share about our common salvation. I wanted to write a letter of celebrating the many good things God has done for us. But, friends, I felt instead compelled to write you and urge you to contend earnestly for the faith. 
This is a call for contenders because there are apostates who have crept into the church. There are false teachings that have crept into the church. And so Jude is a book that's been tremendously valuable to the church throughout the ages and is still increasingly relevant for us today as we move closer and closer to the end times when Jesus said that these false teachings would increase with the coming of the signs of the end times. So we're going to study the book of Jude together over the next six weeks, this call for contenders. Friends, we want to be a church who contend earnestly for the faith. We want to be a church that stands boldly for the truth of God, no matter what it costs. We want to be a church that does not compromise on the truth of God's word. And so this is why it's so important that we study the book of Jude together. This morning, we're going to start by looking at these first two verses. Jude verses 1 and 2. Now again, as we opened up our message this morning, all great leaders know that for a people to be properly motivated when compelled into the fray, right? And that's what Jude is going to be doing in this letter. He is going to compel us to say, look, you need to be in the battle. We need contenders who are standing boldly for the truth. But before I compel you into the fray, Jude wants us to be very clear on what our motivation is. Like those great presidential speeches I read earlier, Jude wants us to recognize who we are and our many blessings. Jude wants to recognize the threat that we're facing, and then he's going to appeal to us with a call to action. And this morning, as we begin our study in Jude, in verses 1 and 2, Jude begins by giving us our motivation for contending for the faith. He reveals here in Jude 1 and 2 the contender's motivation. Let me read these verses for us again. They're on the screen. You can follow along in your own Bible. This is how Jude opens his letter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Here we have two short but incredibly powerful, profound verses of truth. We're going to unpack these declarations that Jude shares about us this morning. Jude tells us, number one, the contender's motivation is rooted in our position. Why do we contend for the faith? We contend for the faith, number one, because we know our position. And what is our position? Well, James in, or Jude introduces himself. Verse 1, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Now, this is a fascinating introduction because you would think Jude, literally a brother, a half-brother of Jesus Christ, you would think that that would be this guy's calling card, Right? I mean, I'm from the first family of the faith, right? Jesus, that guy we all worship, yeah, we're brothers. You would think that that would be Jude's basis for introducing himself. Hi, I'm Jude, the brother of Jesus, right? I mean, that would be kind of natural, you would think. But that is not how Jude introduces himself. Jude begins by introducing himself as a brother, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. Now, who is James? James is one of the leaders of the early church. In fact, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James was a prominent figure in New Testament Christianity. He was another brother of Jesus, another half-brother of Jesus. James is the guy who wrote the book of James that we have in the New Testament. And James was also one of those brothers who didn't believe in Jesus, but later did believe in Jesus and ended up leading the church of Jesus in Jerusalem. 
James was so convinced that Jesus was the risen Messiah, the Son of God, that he would go to his death as a martyr, never once renouncing his faith in Jesus. And so Jude here introduces himself as the brother of this James. Why does he introduce himself this way? Probably, friends, simply as a means of noting his legitimacy as one to speak on behalf of the faith. Jude wasn't about tooting his own horn, but at the same time, as he's calling the church to contend for the faith, he wants them to know, look it, I do have some legitimacy here. When I speak, I speak of things I know. In fact, if you don't believe me, you can go ask my brother James, the guy who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But then he makes this astounding statement. He calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting, friends, that those who were closest to Jesus are unashamed to call themselves servants of Christ? That was Jude's primary designation. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. See, Jude recognized that his spiritual relationship to Jesus is what mattered most. It wasn't the fact that we grew up in the same house, that, that we were birthed by the same mother, that, that we played ball together, right? It, it wasn't any of that. What mattered most to Jude at this point is that he recognized Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so Jude was confident and proud to acknowledge himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. The word servant here in the Greek is the word doulos. This is an interesting word because it literally means a slave. Someone who is legally owned by another person. Jude is calling himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Friends, what would inspire you to call yourself a slave of your brother? Again, I can't explain it other than that Jude came to know who Jesus truly was, the creator of the universe, who came in flesh, who went to the cross, who rose from the grave, who lives eternally forevermore. Jude calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, we often hear this term slavery in our contemporary culture, and we look at this term with very negative connotations. And certainly there are all kinds of negative historical examples of slavery. But here in, in the New Testament, and actually throughout the Bible, people were regularly affirmed or called slaves of God, servants of God. In fact, it was a badge of honor, a mark of distinction. You read in the Old Testament, for example, Abraham was called a slave or servant of God. Moses was called a slave or servant of God. David was called a slave or servant of God. You go to the New Testament. The apostle Paul called himself a servant, a slave of God. Peter called himself a servant, a slave of God. James, Epaphras, and Jude, right? All of these are great heroes of the faith who found profound privilege in their position as servants. Why? Why would they find privilege in calling themselves servants or slaves? Friends, they found privilege in this because they recognized the greatness of the one they served. They recognized that the one they served was the creator of the universe, the creator who revealed himself personally to us in Jesus Christ. The creator who came to earth, who died on a cross for our sins, who rose again because of who he was, they recognized what a privilege it is to call myself a slave of Jesus Christ. 
It wasn't just the greatness of the one they served, but it was the greatness of the price that he paid for us that led them to be proud to call themselves slaves of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, the apostle Paul says, consider the price that was paid for your salvation. The very blood of Jesus Christ who bought and paid for our salvation. And when we understand that price that was paid, friends, of course, what else can we say but Jesus, have my all. I'm your servant. I'm at your disposal. And understand, friends, this is the primary difference between those who are walking in faithfulness and those who are apostates that Jude is going to be addressing in his letter to us. The primary mark of an apostate is an unwillingness to submit themselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. That's the primary mark of an apostate. Somebody who is unwilling to submit themselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. They are the person who is determined to do life my way and not his way. They're the person who knows everything that God's revealed in his word. They've heard his truth, and yet they choose to turn their back on that truth and live in rebellion against it. That's an apostate, friends. All right? And sadly, there are many apostates in our world who have turned their back and denied the truth of the gospel, the truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Unlike the apostates that Jude is going to warn us about here in his letter, Jude had surrendered the entirety of his life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He was at his master's disposal. And embracing the position of a servant, Jude was simply following the example of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, who modeled for us what servanthood looks like. Isn't that interesting that the one to whom we're called to submit our lives as slaves was himself not afraid to take the position of a servant. In fact, we see in the Gospels passages like John chapter 13 at the Last Supper when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He put a towel around his waist. He got down on his knees. He assumed the position, the demeaning position of a slave, washing the dirty, grimy feet of his disciples. And then Jesus says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Friends, when we're called to be a servant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Christ, we're called to nothing less than to serve God and one another in the model that Jesus himself provided for us. Legan Duncan, a contemporary pastor of our day, tells an interesting story about a student he went to seminary with, a man by the name of Augustine Umfune. He was an African from Malawi. For two years, Legan says that he observed Augustine, who was part of the seminary's custodial crew, for two years, Augustine would clean the bathrooms every day. He would scrub the toilets. He would clean the showers. This man did this faithfully and joyfully for two years, working his way through seminary as part of the custodial team, on his knees, scrubbing toilets, washing the floors in the dormitory bathrooms. Two years serving faithfully, joyfully. Legan Duncan tells it wasn't until the end of his time in seminary two years later that he discovered that Augustine Umfune was actually one of the top leaders of the Presbyterian Church in Africa. This man was a pastor, not of a single church, but of multiple churches of thousands of people. And yet Augustine Umfune was not 
too great in his mind to humble himself to serve his brothers and sisters as he worked his way through seminary. What inspires a man to do these things? It's the acknowledgement that our lives are not our own anymore. We were bought with a price. We are servants of Jesus Christ. Friends, that has to be our posture. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus today, your life is wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus and his will and his way. That's what our call is as followers of Jesus. One of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith is that in service to Christ, we actually find our truest freedom. And when we submit ourselves to Christ, that's when we experience elevation to life abundant. It's found in living as slaves of Jesus, servants of Jesus. Our church over the years has been blessed with many faithful slaves of Jesus Christ, men and women who have modeled service to our church, service to one another, service to the Lord. One of these faithful brothers was here with us this morning. He doesn't know I'm going to point him out today, but it's actually his last Sunday with us this morning, Ron Peterson. Ron Peterson is going to be moving uh, down south of the Twin Cities to be closer to his family. Ron has faithfully served first his wife Sharon, who went to be with the Lord a few years ago, faithfully serving his wife for, through years of her battle with cancer. And then Ron faithfully served our church for many years as a leader and our ambassadors ABF in many other ways. God has blessed our church with many faithful servants of Jesus. Ron, we love you. And we thank you for giving us a model of what service looks like. So Jude here begins his letter by motivating us, by reminding us of our position. But then next, Jude motivates us to contend by reminding us of our privilege. Our privilege. He says in verse 2, to those who are called, to those who are beloved in God the Father, to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. What incredible privileges are ours. Jude says, number one, we are the called. Here Jude reminds us of the first and greatest privilege of all who've entered into our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have been called by God's gracious choice even before the creation of the world. Now understand, friends, this call is not an invitation. This isn't like those, those high school open house you know, cards that you're receiving in the mail today where you can either say yes or no, choose to go or not. No, this call is an effectual call. And that term effectual call is a call which means God chooses the believer and then sovereignly draws him or her to himself. It's an effectual call. It's an irresistible call. And it's a call rooted in God's sovereign choice before the foundation of the world. Look at what scriptures teach us on this matter. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. 
When Jude says we are called friends, that call goes back before the foundation of the world when God chose those elect who would be predestined unto salvation. And so when God calls those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, it's an effectual call where we can't deny it. We are compelled to trust in the God who created us, the God who called us, the God who saves us. Look what Jesus tells us on this. John 6, 35 through 37. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now this is very fascinating because look at what does scripture tell us? The Father has given some to Jesus. And all those that the Father gives, when Jesus calls, they're going to respond, right? That's what Jesus tells us. But notice, there's also a component of free will involved in this, where we have to respond too, right? And so there's this mystery in the New Testament, in our faith, of both our freedom and our responsibility, and God's effectual call that cannot be resisted. How do these two things reconcile themselves? It's a paradox. It's a mystery, but the Bible teaches both of these things. We're called, and yet we're responsible to respond to that call. But this is really fascinating because the reality is, friends, remember, it's an effectual call. You can't deny it. And why can't you deny it? You can't deny it because... Your name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, we saw it just this last week when we were talking about the Antichrist and the tribulation. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, we read that all those who follow the Antichrist, everyone on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Friends, that is an incredible statement. There are names written in God's book of life, the Lamb's book of life, written in that book before the foundation of the world, before God even created anything. Chris Jensen's name before creation was written in that book of life. And then God created the world and set in motion his plan of salvation. And years ago, God effectually called Chris. And yes, Chris responded to that call in his free will, but it was an irresistible call. How do those things work together? Again, it's a mystery, but it's what God's word declares. Because those of us who trust in Jesus, our names were written in that book of life before the foundation of the world. Charles Spurgeon has this interesting quote on this topic He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. (laughs) And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Isn't that true, friends? God has called us. What a privilege. But the second privilege that Jude highlights for us here, he says that we are also beloved. Beloved in God the Father. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. What love. 
The, the word love that's used here, the, 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 the term beloved that Jude uses, the root of that term is agape. It's God's unconditional love. John goes on in 1 John 4, 9 through 10. What kind of love has the Father given to us? This kind of love. A love made manifest among us when God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitute for our sins. Friends, that's God's love. That's God's unconditional love for those he has called. Jesus in John 17, 22 through 23, describes the nature of this love. This is fascinating and incredible, and if this doesn't warm your heart this morning, I can't say anything more. Listen to this. Jesus says, this is his heavenly, this is his prayer to God the Father before his crucifixion. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, to his disciples, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Wow. Are you a follower of Jesus today? How much does God love you? God loves you as much as he loves his son, Jesus Christ. See what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us. The very love that the Father has for the eternal son is the very same love that he loves each of us with. You know, this word beloved here that Jude reminds us what we are, beloved, it's an interesting word. I want to show you something cool. If you take the word beloved and break it into two parts, the word beloved says, be loved. And I would be willing to bet there's a number of you here this morning who need to be loved. Maybe you're like the prodigal son and you've been rebelling against the Lord. Maybe you've gone far from home. Maybe you're one of those apostates that Jude's been talking about here. And you've turned your back on God and you've turned your back on his truth. You've been living in your pride and in your rebellion. And maybe today is the day where you turn to return home and you find your loving Heavenly Father there with open arms saying, come and be loved. Maybe you're here today and you're carrying so much guilt and shame because of things that you've done, sins you've committed, you think there's no way that God could ever love me. And God's arms are open, and he says, come and be loved. Friends, that's who our Heavenly Father is. He's a God who says to each and every one of us, be loved. What a privilege that's ours. Jude goes on then, and he says next, not only are we called, not only are we beloved in God the Father, but we are kept we are kept for Jesus Christ. You know, one of the most common questions young believers ask, I've heard it countless times, Pastor Jason, can I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Not according to Jesus. What does Jesus tell us? John 6, 39 through 40. Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up 
on the last day. This is what Jude is talking about when he says we are kept. Jesus goes on in John 10, 27 through 29. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Friends, isn't that good news this morning? If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are kept by God because of his great love for you. You were called, you are beloved, and you are kept. This is why in that great hymn we sing, Amazing Grace, the second verse, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. God's grace is what keeps us in the love of God. What a great promise. What are we kept for? Jude tells us we are kept for Jesus Christ. What does that mean? The Apostle Paul describes this for us in Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27. Speaking to husbands and how we should love our wives. He uses this analogy. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that Jesus saves us and then God keeps us to present us to Jesus in eternity as a radiant bride. Those of us who make up the church, the called, the beloved, the kept, we will be offered to Jesus Christ at the great wedding of the Lamb in eternity. And we will be married to Christ for all of eternity. We are kept for God, kept for Christ. This is, our, this is our privilege, friends. Called, beloved, kept. What privileges are ours in Christ? But lastly, Jude concludes this opening. Remember, right, he's motivating us. Why do we contend for the faith? I want to remind you what you are all about, what our faith is all about, right? Understand this is your position, this is your privilege. And then thirdly, he tells us this is our portion as God's people. He prays, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is the portion that God gives, friends. And these aren't just poured out one time on us. No, these are heaped out in abundance upon us. What is God's mercy? God's mercy is his compassion, his help, his sustenance in our time of need. Matthew 6, 31 and 32 reminds us, Jesus says, Therefore don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Friends, God knows your needs. And in his mercy, he will supply all your needs. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us this in Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now some people say, well, Pastor Jason, I need a new speedboat. Is God going to supply that need? No, God's going to supply what you need, not what you necessarily want. And guess what? He might supply you with that speedboat because he might know that you need it for some reason in his eternal plan. 
But if he doesn't supply you with that speedboat, guess what? He's going to provide you with what you do need according to his eternal plan. And in his mercy, he is always faithful to supply us with everything we need. Jude then tells us about God's peace, the portion of peace that he provides. Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Friends, the world's peace is transactional and temporary. The world's peace is based on what you can do for me. And it doesn't last. God's peace, Jesus' peace is unconditional and unending. And if you need the peace of God this morning... The Apostle Paul tells us how we can get that peace. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So our portion is mercy, it's peace, it's love. We've already seen God highlight our belovedness here in Jude. Isaiah 54, 10 says, God says his steadfast love shall never depart from us. Friends, this is our portion. It's mercy, it's peace, it's love. And then Jude says, I love this last phrase, may all of these things be multiplied to you in abundance, mercy, peace, love, in abundance, multiplied. If you go to the southern European city of, uh, country of Montenegro, you can find there a famous tree. This tree is called the fountain tree. It's an interesting tree because its roots have tapped into a massive aquifer, providing this tree with a constant flow of water. It's just constantly spewing out water. They call it the fountain tree. And friends, just like the fountain tree, for those of us who are in Christ who experience the blessings of his infinite mercy, his peace, his love. These things are never going to cease flowing in abundance from our lives because we have an infinite supply in him. Friends, I want to ask you this morning, have you tapped into the infinite blessings that are available in Christ? Have you experienced the marvelous portion that's available in him? If you haven't, you can by putting your trust in Jesus. All of these can be yours, even here this morning. For those of us here who have experienced the blessings that are ours in Christ, in the coming weeks we're going to hear the Lord calling to us through Jude to enter the fray. Friends, there's a spiritual battle for truth that's raging in our world today. And sadly, this battle has even infiltrated the church. And the Lord is calling us into action. He's looking for contenders. And as we consider the Lord's call, I pray that these truths we've studied today might bolster your confidence in who you are in Christ and motivate you to stand against all who deny or diminish the blessings that we have in him. Much is at stake. But by God's grace and through God's grace, the victory will be won and he will be glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your powerful truths that you've given us in your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts with these truths, that you would motivate us with this understanding of who we are and all the blessings that are ours. 
And may we live to honor you and serve you faithfully, contending for the faith, speaking truth in a world full of error. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, please stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May God bless you. Go and serve as ambassadors of Jesus. Amen. Hey, friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series, along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday services or other events. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us, and may God bless you.